This is the I Am Bio Uncut series, where we bring you a full interview from Monday's podcast, Complete and Unfiltered. So, Garen, thank you so much for joining us. Can we just start with your title and exactly what it is that you do at Genentech? Absolutely, Michelle. Well, first, it is a pleasure to join you on the I Am Bio podcast. Uh, I'm a fan of this of this work and really excited to be a part of this conversation uh, as it is a national conversation. And I'm really glad that we're a part of this discussion. So to your question, I am currently the head of inclusion strategy and partnerships within the chief diversity office at Genentech. And within this capacity, I lead the design and activation of Genentech's diversity and inclusion strategy and really try to harness the power of our increasingly diverse world surrounding and within healthcare to help our organization deliver better science, better medicine, and and ultimately deliver better outcomes for patients. I love it. So why is this diversity work so important to Genentech? Why is it critical to the future of the business? Well, I think it's fundamental for our sustainability in healthcare, for organizations like Genentech and others to be directly focused on unlocking the power of diversity and inclusion to deliver more innovation. As a biotechnology company and a manufacturer of of medicine, we realize that the face of disease is changing. You know, if you just look at the next 30 year time horizon, by 2030, new cancer cases will increase by over 80% low in low-income countries. By 2040, over half of the patients living with Alzheimer's in the U.S. will be Black or Hispanic. Take that out another five years. U.S. cases of breast cancer are projected to increase by 72% in Black patients, 98% in Latino patients, over 120% in patients of Asian and Pacific Islander ancestry. And then if we think about, you know, 2050, at the, uh, the midpoint of the century, Alzheimer cases in China are expected to quadruple and count and account for over half of the cases worldwide. Mm. So, you know, this work is fundamental to who we are as an organization. And as you think about, as we look at these global demographic shifts, it's absolutely critical to ensure that all patients are a part of our research process, our drug development processes, uh, the innovation that we hope to to bring to bear to help tackle some of these most challenging diseases that, that we're faced with. Uh, because those are the patients of the future. And if we're not paying attention to those patients now, we won't be in a position to provide them value and provide benefit in the future. So it's it's fundamental to who we are as an organization uh, and what we aspire to, to provide to patients. So let's unpack that a little bit for everyone. You know, I can see that, you know, the changing demographics around the globe are changing the types of patients that you're going to be treating tomorrow. But how do you really engineer that or include that into your thinking when you're developing a drug? So that is a a fantastic question. And I love the use of the word engineering uh, because that is that's really what this is all about. There's a lot of design thinking and engineering that takes place to think about this system of value that we are a part of and that we work within um, and figure out ways that we can engineer more value for more patients. So uh, the way we've thought about it at Genentech, number one is first, we have to establish a commitment to advance inclusive research. Uh, We realize that we want to do more uh, now for patients, you know, and and provide benefit for patients going forward. 
So we, we have to make a commitment to ensure that our research practices and approach truly is designed in a way to integrate more uh, patients who have historically been underserved. You know, first, I would say it takes commitment, both from our executive level leadership and, and commitment across our research and development enterprise, that inclusive research matters, not just as a, a nice to have or, you know, an altruistic endeavor, uh, but a, a true commitment and understanding that this is critical to the science that we uh, are conducting and to the value that we want to produce for patients. And I think once you have the commitment, it takes a level of, of resourcing to really make this work happen. I mean, this is challenging work. There's a lot of, you know, well-established systems for drug development, ways of thinking about drug development protocols that, you know, really set the blueprint for a clinical trial. Then the type of operational infrastructure that exists for us to then conduct that clinical trial. And those are, you know, processes that have been established that, you know, we've developed a certain degree of competence and command with. We have a certain regulatory environment that is conducive to a certain way of work. And in order to change that, in order to ensure that we are identifying those barriers that have historically prevented all patient groups from being a part of the research process, requires us to break some things. It requires us to mm -hmm. look at those processes and examine them critically in a manner to ensure that we are making the appropriate changes and removing some of the barriers that have prevented people from participating. Some examples of that include where we choose to conduct research. You know, historically we've worked with a lot of, uh, you know, leading research centers. These are, you know, the Memorial Sloan Ketterings, the Dana-Farbers. These are preeminent thought leaders and, and you know, global research, global leaders in the research environment. And we have and will continue to do a lot of research at those at those institutions. But we also have to realize that not all patients receive their care there. You know, I, I'm under the impression that, you know, that you are, are from the, the Bay Area where I, where I live now, Oakland. And, you know, historically, we've worked with Stanford to do a lot of research. And now we realize that, you know, there are a lot of patients that are in the Oakland area, like, and, you know, who may receive their care at the Highland Hospital uh, and in, in those type of care settings that we have to work with differently and invite those research, those locations to be a part of the research process so that we can tap into the value that they're providing patients and collaborate differently with those type of research partners so that they can participate in the research environment. So it requires us thinking differently about where we do our research, how we are educating and, and, and talking to patients about the value of research participation, and it requires a commitment to continue to do these things over time and not be episodic with this, not be transactional with it, but to really be deeply committed to staying the course, uh, because this is going to take uh, both human resources and financial investment for us to shift this system in a way that more people can participate within it and extract some of the value from it. I love that image of breaking some things. <laughs> Maybe some of our listeners will know that that's an approach I, I champion from time to time as well. I was reflecting as you were speaking about these ivory-towered halls of, of medicine where they're you know, it's the bright, shiny academic medical center, which many of us re received our training in. But as you walk those halls, you don't often see as many patients of color as you would expect, knowing the prevalence of disease in so many different communities. Yeah. Do you think it's just proximity 
that is really at play there. And I, I'll tell you why I ask this. I remember when my my father was was ill in the, in one of the Texas Medical Center hospitals in Houston. And he was in this gleaming, beautiful hospital that had a baby grand piano in the lobby and marble floors. And every time I would go and visit him, I would sometimes go down into the tunnels to get food from one of the other connected five hospitals. And I'd come up in one of the hospitals and it would be 90% black. And mm -hmm. I'd come up in the gleaming baby grand piano hospital and I would rarely see a person of color. Wow. And that's just a few blocks away from each other. And so I often hear, well, our academic medical centers aren't located where patients of color can reach them. But is it that or is it really they're not welcoming those patients in the door? And if so, what can companies like Genentech do in your reengineering of your research to touch that issue as well? That's a great illustration of, of the care environments that you know, our patients find themselves in both in the academic medical hospital and maybe in the community-based med uh, medical center. So I think that, you know, as a, as a sponsor for research, we can do both things well. We can communicate with our academic medical centers, those that have historically been our close collaborators in the research setting, and let them know that inclusive research is important to us and that we expect that they will recruit a population, a, a demographic into the studies that they participate in that truly reflects the demographics of the disease that we are uh, answering a scientific question with them. So I think that there's, you know, establishing this commitment inside of our organization and communicating that commitment to our research network is critically important. And then holding our research network accountable to uh, standing up and delivering against that that ambition. So I think that's certainly something that we can do as a as a one of the stakeholders in this in this network to really drive some change at the academic medical center. Hmm. And then we also need to give access and think differently about where we conduct research. That community-based hospital more often than not has the type of technology required to be a strong research participant. They have the staff um, you know, maybe they haven't had as much exposure to the research network, but they certainly have well-trained, smart doctors and, and smart, you know, a clinical infrastructure that could support clinical research participation. But they've just been on the outside looking in for, you know, for the reason, for whatever reasons that may exist there. And, and just, you know, researcher sponsors overall haven't uh, decided to cast a wider net to bring more clinical research sites into our, our research networks. So I think we, we have to do both. We have to establish this as a priority for our existing research network, and we have to open up that research network more so that new partners can participate in that setting, bring their expertise, and fundamentally bring the trust that they have with their patient base and their communities into this environment. Uh, and I think if we do that, along with a host of other interventions that we can make, we will put ourselves on a path to see more representation in clinical research, you know, more patients that truly experience disease, finding themselves in the research environment, benefiting from the high degree, high level of clinical care that takes place within that in that environment, and, and ideally experiencing better outcomes uh, as a result of that participation. That's that's our aspiration. Mm. But I'll also say this, like I, I too, my father also 
was in a very similar, uh, had a very similar experience. Uh, you know, he was, when I first got into this space of inclusive research, diversity in clinical trials, uh, trying to understand how Genentech prioritized this type of work and what type of changes we can make, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer. And at the time we were, we had just pulled together this advisory group of thought leaders from, uh, from oncology, ophthalmology, neuroscience, and patient advocacy organizations and others to start to advise Genentech on how we can think about bringing in more historically underserved groups into our research setting. And at the time that I was forming and developing this particular advisory committee and building relationships with the likes of, you know, Dr. Otis Brawley, who used to be the chief medical officer at the American Cancer Society, and, and Edith Mitchell, past president of the National Medical Association, these preeminent thought leaders in cancer care. I had this very personal struggle that I was dealing with to talk to my father about clinical research and to try to, you know, mm. talk to him about, you know, bringing this to his care team and me helping him being a part of those conversations with his doctors. Now for him, he had been with, this is in St. Louis, you know, St. Louis, he had been with his, uh, within his network, SLU Care, for years. That was where he, you know, got all of his medical care, his primary care doctor was there, his cardiologist was there, all of his care team was there. But unfortunately, they didn't have access to clinical trials for his particular diagnosis. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. But mm -hmm. WashU, which was the, you know, the more pro more prominent research uh, institution in the region, did. They had they had clinical trials at that hospital, and there wasn't so much a, a kind of a, a stark difference in the environments in which people would receive care between St. Louis University and Washington University. But there was a distinct difference in the types of research programs that were being conducted between those two institutions. And it was truly a challenge. And, and, and unfortunately, I, I wasn't able to really get through to him in a way to get him to consider receiving his care in another, another environment because he had built up so much trust within his network. And it's one of those kind of personal, professional driving inspirations now um, that really that really motivates me to try to do more because I ha I've had a personal experience and have had this challenge within my own family, trying to get this right, trying to, you know, uh, trying to talk to my family about some of these topics. And and yet I'm also a professional in this space and I'm surrounded by experts and thought leaders in this space. And I think it just illuminates part of the challenge. There's some institutional challenges, there's some sponsor challenges, and there's some just family challenges. There's some patient mm -hmm. challenges in, in how we talk to patients about this topic and, and really educate um, communities around, you know, what's at stake, you know, when they're faced with a serious diagnosis and how research can be a part of their path to, to health. You're touching on such a poignant topic, which is how do we convey the potential impact and power of biomedical research to a lot of these communities that we've come from? Because it sounds so foreign. It sounds like a luxury. It sounds like something that doesn't necessarily relate to their day and day to day. But those of us who get a glimpse inside of the power of research know that it can be transformative and bringing those conversations to families and communities is such an important step. It absolutely is. I, I view my current role as part engineer, kind of design thinker within 
the organization that I represent and, you know, an ambassador within uh, the biotechnology universe writ large. But I also find myself as a someone who is trying to, yes, inspire a different kind of conversation uh, within communities of color as it relates to our health, our well-being, and the promise of, uh, you know, uh, the promise of a future where we are closing healthcare disparities and truly uh, unlocking, you know, healthy lifestyles and uh, able to, uh, to 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 cure some of these serious illnesses that that impact our community so much, and and part of that that charge I believe is is going to you know different environments and talking start first talking with my own family. I have a big family in St. Louis and trying to talk to them about exactly what you're seeing, what I'm observing within my own company, the scale of innovation, uh, the brilliance of my colleagues, our you know, kind of current investment in personalized healthcare and, and really, you know, both this integration of big data, technology, machine learning, and combining that with all of the expertise we've built up in drug development and in diagnostics to truly deliver a powerful vision of personalized healthcare going forward, helping doctors make smarter decisions for patients, helping us cure diseases faster. And I'm seeing all of this and I'm trying to operate as a translator uh, into certain communities to let them know, like, the future is bright, it's promising. There's a lot of fascinating work that's taking place, but we have to be a part of this conversation and we have to think differently about our healthcare and have a different kind of conversation within our families and, and at home so that we can appreciate where technology is, where it's going, the promise that it that it has for for us as people who would benefit from this technology and benefit from this future state, but recognizing that there is a degree of reluctance and there's, you know, we have questions and there's uh, layers of distrust that, you know, are, are well-reasoned, but uh, in some ways are limiting our ability to take advantage of the best that healthcare has to offer. And, and that's something that I think we all, like I come from the African-American community. And so that's something that I feel like it's it's a personal uh, commitment that I have to make to my own community to just constantly be a voice for change so that we are having a different kind of conversations with our parents, our grandparents, our aunts and uncles, cousins and the like, uh, answering questions, being patient, you know, uh, creating safe spaces where people can get all their health care questions out and then just trying to plant seeds of what's coming and what's on the horizon so that they can reflect on those seeds in their own time, start to ask questions with their doctors and in their circles, so that we stimulate a different kind of dialogue about, about healthcare, about the system of healthcare, about innovation in medicine and, and the future of personalized healthcare. I think that's something that's fundamentally important for us in our communities. I, I want that for all other communities that I, that I hold dear, the Latino community, the Asian Pacific Islander community, the white community. All of these communities have health issues. Some are participating in the research environment that is gonna be the information that is used to design the future of healthcare more than others. And so they stand to benefit more than others uh, as that innovation starts to roll out. And so I think what, what I'm really focused on is ensuring that those that maybe not have been as present now become more present so that we can all realize 
what's to come. Hmm. Well, you've inspired me. So let's let's talk nitty gritty for a minute. Mm-hmm. I hear from member companies all the time who say, you know, we really want to diversify our clinical trials, but we don't know what works. What specific initiatives has Genentech tried and which have really shown results? Mm-hmm. So that's a really good question. I would say I would highlight a few things. I would say first it is you have to have experts providing insight that your company is willing to take action on. So one of the first things we did, and I just alluded to it in a previous question, was we established an external counsel, an advisory body that would would provide us recommendations for changes that we could make to our research practices. Uh, our approach to research, help redesign our kind of established processes to open them up and make them more inclusive, things like inclusion exclusion criteria and sites that we do research at, et cetera. We established that advisory group to both give us the insight and then also hold us accountable for, for driving change. So I would say pull together a body of advisors that stand outside of the company, uh, because I think the the power of that advisory group is that they create a different level of accountability for company leadership to respond to. And that mm-hmm. I found that we have seen that with, you know, just the presence of our CEO, our chief medical officer, you know, heads of our global product strategy are all now participating and engaging our external counsel for inclusive research to extract some of that expertise, but also to, to showcase that, that we're committed and that that leadership will that we will drive change in these large organizations. So that's something that I think is very important. And now I'll talk a little bit about uh, some structural changes that could be relevant for a large organization to consider. I think it's important to look at, you know, the, the, the blueprint that sets the path for research. So the clinical development protocol that just outlines the disease area that that's in focus, you know, talks about the scientific questions that exist within that disease area and kind of outline how clinical research would be, de- would be done in a certain disease area. And evaluate those protocols for biases. I think what we've found in our organization is that, you know, our inclusion or our clinical trial protocol and elements within it, mainly like our inclusion and exclusion criteria uh, for a lot of our clinical studies were things that have been templatized almost. They have been kind of, you know, we had gotten a certain, you know, standard patient healthy patient model uh, identified within those protocol. And that became something that was adopted across multiple protocols in a particular disease area. And we realized that things like serum creatinine clearance, um, as an example, there are lab specific normals by population. So as as a black man or as a black person, we have maybe a higher density of muscles. So our serum creatinine clearance levels would be higher than, than maybe say another population. And but our protocols would oftentimes uh, would be benchmarked to a patient of European ancestry. So there was creating some some uh, limitations in who could participate or who was excluded from research based on uh, the that the that normal patient model that was embedded in the templates of our clinical trial protocol. So I would say evaluate clinical trial protocol for biases. That's one of the some of the scientific um, clinical science parameters. And then there's a whole host of operational changes that can be made. Uh, and I think we in so doing, I think organizations can become more patient centric when assessing their clinical operations for for new 
for to create more access and opportunity for for all patients. I would say that you know removing financial barriers is a key is a key area of focus for our organization. We have a zero cost to patient initiative, which is really looking at some of the ancillary costs that are associated with research, more frequent doctor's visits, which require you know transportation costs, childcare costs, things along those lines. Uh, how can we remove some of those costs for patients to remove the, the financial burden associated with research participation? That's been shown to really help patients afford and to be in that environment for an extended period of time. And then we have also ensured that we elevate the level of accountability for both our contract research organizations and our clinical trial sites by embedding new language within our contracts to communicate our priority around inclusive research and our expectation that our partners in this environment will also um, would also share that type of uh, that type of priority in the work that they do in collaboration with us. So those have been, you know, some of the clinical science strategies that have been effective, some of the operational strategies that have been effective. Um, beyond that, I think it's it's been really important for us to uh, get out and and immerse ourselves in the community, uh, invest in in environments where we can bring stakeholders together to talk about uh, the challenges in health equity at large or talk about challenges in uh, you know, advancing inclusive research and clinical trial diversity. Uh, this morning was an example. We actually partner with uh, the Ohio State University to bring community stakeholders together, both the institution as well as members of the community to, to tackle some of these conversations, go out into breakout groups, identify some of the local challenges and local solutions that could be relevant. These are some of the things that we have done to, to really move the needle. And I, I think these are, are things that, you know, holistically, uh, other companies can consider uh, because they uh, they do have value and they do have impact. Well, one thing that's really on the front of our is really in front of us right now is a deeper investment in the infrastructure that can that can produce results. And so, what do I mean by that? We are in the process of establishing an a site alliance model, which is a collaboration with clinical research sites, hospitals, medical centers who have had a track record of success in recruiting patients into oncology clinical trials. And we are going to establish a network and a partnership with these clinical research sites, a community, uh, to both unlock more operational efficiencies that will help us recruit more underserved patients into our studies, as well as create a, an a environment for enhanced scientific collaboration, both between those sites and Genentech, as well as within that site community uh, itself. And our intention is to, number one, ensure that you know, we can bring more populations into our studies, but also to create a learning community where a lot of these best practices can be shared and cross-pollinated across sites that are around the country. And it serves as a, as a platform for ongoing investment for our organization into this space of, of inclusive research, clinical trial diversity, and more broad and health equity more broadly. So we're really excited about this, this new site alliance model that we're launching. We had a kickoff meeting a couple of weeks ago with the first four sites that are going to be a part of this network. We hope to grow this to, you know, 15 sites within the next couple of years. Uh, there's going to be an element of this that brings in clinical research sites from around the world. We're looking at uh, some site partners in, in Africa and Latin America 
And it's really gonna follow a model that we've done in the cancer immunotherapy development world, uh, the MCOR model. Uh, just in this context, it will be focused specifically on, uh, on advancing inclusive research, both in the US and globally. So th those are a few things I'd, I'd highlight, but I'll, I'll pause there. More than a few. I love the concrete examples of things people can do because those are the questions we get asked quite a bit. You know, I was thinking, I want to ask you a few somewhat rapid fire questions about conventional wisdom pertaining to diverse clinical trials. And sometimes I have this these points of view myself, and it, it'd be good to hear your point of view on whether or not they're accurate. And if they are accurate, are they critical? Mm -hmm. So number one, is conducting a diverse clinical trial more expensive? No, no. And I'll have two examples that could dispel that myth. I think that is a, a widely held misperception that it's gonna cost more money to reach underserved populations, to break through these barriers of trust, or to work with sites that haven't historically been a part of clinical research. Uh, we have two examples I can highlight that are dispelling that myth. Uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we stood up and sponsored the IMPACTA study. And that stands for Evaluating Minority Patients in Actemra uh, who were diagnosed with COVID-19 pneumonia. And we went to a site network that we hadn't really worked with as much in the past. A lot of sites that were deeply embedded within communities of interest in the New York area and spread out around the country. We were able to stand that study up from protocol development through first patient in. It was the fastest study. Now, granted, the pandemic really um, catalyzed some of that speed and momentum, just given the conditions that we were operating within. But fastest study from protocol development to first patient in within our organization. And then to, you know, last patient in, uh, you know, we, we found that that study was was not was no more expensive than any study that we had done in that category, looking in within the immunology space, this type of molecule, this type of patient mix and, and demographic, uh, that the study was was done on time and within the budget that we have hist historically come to expect a study like this would cost. So that dispels the myth there. And then currently we are enrolling the a study in multiple sclerosis, the CHIME study. It's the characterization of uh, avocalizumab in, in minority patients with multiple sclerosis. This study, uh, similar context is we're, you know, specifically recruiting uh, African-American and Latino patients, uh, really to scientific questions to understand why the disease presents differently in those patient groups than what we've seen in patients of European ancestry. And that study is also enrolling ahead of schedule, enrolling ahead of schedule from in comparison to our other multiple sclerosis studies. And the costs are right in line with other MS studies that we've conducted in, in the past. So this notion that uh, a focus on inclusive research, a focus on diversifying clinical studies is gonna cost more money, it's gonna be more expensive, we have two strong concrete examples where we are only recruiting these, these patient groups and it's coming in under budget and they're actually enrolling uh, faster than, than other studies we've done in the, in the past. So that, you know, there's probably, those are, those are an example both on cost and speed. And both of those two things I think are myths that uh, have held some of our companies back from doing more in this space. Well, you just answered my second conventional wisdom question, which is, does it take more time? So, so in your experience, it is really clearly not taking longer to do these diverse trials. 
There are some, yeah, so in those two examples, no. And those have been, you know, at least for, for us at Genentech, that have, they have been hallmarks to help bust up some of the misperceptions that study teams have around this area of focus. As you can fully appreciate, uh, Michelle, you know, the prime directive for most large research organizations is is speed in the research environment. How quickly can you you both stand up the study and enroll it? Uh, and then evaluate the the data and the evidence that comes out of it. Speed is the prime directive. Quality of the data is a prime directive. Patient care is a prime directive. And on the speed front, uh, there there has been this perception that because it requires some new design thinking, it, because it requires some new relationships in the environment, because it requires educating and talking to patients in a different way, uh, that those things are going to take more time and I think what we are seeing is that they don't take more time, they just take a different approach. They take a different yeah. network and party that you're engaging with, and they take some time to build up some new relationships that will allow us to do more. But I think I think as, as we think about the future of more inclusive clinical research efforts, industry starts to take this uh, you know, at scale and more companies are investing in this type of work. We are going to build up the capacity uh, to do this and to do this effectively and to do this at the same with the same degree of rigor uh, and expectation that we conduct all of our research activity. I but love I that. That was so that. tweetable. It doesn't mm -hmm. take more time. It takes a different approach. I love that. Okay, the next one for you. So you enrolled this diverse trial, but are the patients going to be, or more patients going to be lost to follow-up? Are you going to be able to get the patients to come back for their follow-up appointments? That's another conventional wisdom assumption. Yes. So I do think that there is some degree of, uh, that's a very valid question. I think it's a valid question, uh, but I do think there are some emerging areas of focus that can help us tackle this question. I'm really drawn to patient navigation related services mm -hmm. uh, right now. I think we've, we're certain, starting to see more of this in the literature. Dr. Karen Wingfield has really you know, put out uh, you know, a really compelling evidence on the impact and the value of patient navigation. Others are starting to coalesce around this particular topic. I think it's been in focus for a number of years, but part of the challenge has been is that we haven't been able to quite figure out how to uh, support patient navigation at scale, how to help you know, uh, centers have a patient navigator on staff to, you know, help a patient just move through the continuum of care, understand that there are going to be maybe more frequent visits and doctor's visits during a clinical trial, understand they're going to be talking potentially to, you know, people they haven't talked to at the hospital, so on and so forth, other services that may support a patient who's a part of a clinical study. So there, there is within that whole constellation of activity and just the journey associated with clinical research participation, there is risk of, you know, patients would fall out off, uh, fall off that path because it's burdensome potentially, or it's more, it, it requires a little bit more effort than uh, what a typical annual appointment with your doctor may require. Mm -hmm. But I think if you have somebody that's holding your hand and walking alongside you that you trust or that you feel a connection with, that you feel like has your best interests at heart, it makes that participation easier. And I think as an industry, if we can figure out ways to support that type of relationship, 
bringing patient navigation into the research setting at scale will help patients stay on study and, and enroll. I mentioned our site alliance network. This is something that we're going to pilot within that network. I think we found some innovative ways to ensure that patient navigation services can be embedded within a study budget, which is something that we're really excited about. Um, I think this set of services is very different than a clinical research coordinator, which has been a, a traditional uh, outline of a role that, that takes place that has mm -hmm. been funded within a study budget. We're clarifying mm -hmm. and going to articulate that in a different way because we know that this has value. One of our site alliance partners, the University of Alabama, Birmingham, presented some evidence that, sh that showed that for cancer clinical trials, black patients, 75% of those patients who were enrolled in studies and mapped and connected with the patient navigator finished the study compared to 35% of the patients who enrolled in studies and didn't have a patient navigator. So mm -hmm. I think that really starts to zero in on the value of patient navigation as a mechanism to help address this uh, concern around uh, patients falling out of the, the trial and being lost to follow up based on the, the nature of study participation. I am so glad you mentioned Karen Winkfield. She was right behind me in Duke in the MD-PhD program. So I, and I always admire her work. So Duke is going strong. So, Duke is going so, strong. So, work. One more um, conventional wisdom for you. Okay. So you manage to enroll. It goes, it's managing, it's affordable. You're able to get the patients to come to follow up. Are minority patients sicker on average and therefore obscuring your ability to see the impact of your drug? Hmm. That's a tough one. Uh, that is a tough one. That is a tough one because uh, I think it, it there's layers of the system. These are now like I'm thinking about social determinants of health and other um, challenges in this macro system of challenge that has created disparity in, in in terms of a disease experience and outcomes across patient type patient groups. So I would say this, um, and I'll use 2020 as an example. As a, as a black man, I've been stressed out due to the pandemic and due to um, violence due to, uh, so my stress levels are higher. And I think our uh, community uh, trauma that are is seated within our community is 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 at all time high, and so there is some degree of anxiety and stress, and though we know that those are conditions that impact patients' health, and I think as we're starting to appreciate and actually call out systemic racism has impact on communities of color, black and Latin communities, uh, and that also has impact in addition to just kind of the social circumstances that groups find themselves in, and and um, as a result of that, of that history and the very present reality of kind of enduring stresses that we are carrying with us due to, um, circumstances, you know, police violence and, and other things. So I, I do appreciate a different social set of circumstances that have an underlying impact on the health and well-being of communities of color. But to say that, that then, you know, if you were to, you know, a patient is diagnosed with, say, triple negative breast cancer, you have those kind of attributes that run alongside that patient's presentation and their actual kind of clinical history and, 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 and uh, you know, kind of the genomic information that's used to 
to direct care. I don't necessarily believe that our patients, when when have when they've been evaluated, especially against the the protocol for a study, are are presenting sicker. Because I you, I think the protocol actually is is designed in a way to uh, to 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 bring a certain type of patient into the study. We need to do more to actually kind of open up that protocol a little bit. I think we we're learning some things like brain mets and other types of clinical characteristics, you know, kind of basal kidney function, basal liver function, those types of things vary across populations. And therefore, we should create some lab normal values that are population specific. Uh, and these are some of just kind of the lating, latest thinking within population science to allow more patients into the study and to account for some of these like lab normal differences, but which otherwise are just kind of comparably healthy patients. So I guess I'm saying two things in this in this response. I am saying, yes, there are some social circumstances which uh, do have impact on the health of communities, uh, because I do think that's important to call out. But I think in the context of clinical research participation, part of the intention of clinical research participation is to control the variables that uh, are a part of the scientific assessment and to ensure that patients that are present within the studies that have been evaluated against the protocol that have been screened in and are now enrolled into the study. I, I wouldn't say there's any underlying kind of differences that would compromise the integrity of the study. Mm -hmm. In other words, if they have been screened in, we have not seen this at Genentech, that they are then therefore the data is, uh, the integrity of the data is compromised or the potential outcome of the study is compromised by virtue of the fact that they are uh, maybe a, a member of an under historically underserved patient community. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I'm trying to kind of it does. I'm yeah. a line here. I am walking <laughs> a line here and I've realized it because I, it's just my own personal integrity. I can't not account for some of those social differences, but we're not mm -hmm. necessarily seeing that impact the integrity of a study. So, you know, the way I think about it is I think about it as the flip side of the coin. So, you know, if there are other factors influencing health in minority communities, then you might actually see a larger effect or you mm -hmm. might see an effect in those communities when you don't see it in communities of European ancestry. And wouldn't it be a shame mm -hmm. if you miss that clinically significant data um, yes. as you're a sponsor trying to see if a new um, drug compound is going to be useful for public health. So it's it's a tricky one, but yeah, I, I think there's as much upside as there is downside. Absolutely. A absolutely. And, and another, I would add maybe one other element to that, and then we can get to your next question. One of the kind of frameworks that a lot of organizations in healthcare are, are focused on is like the Institute for Healthcare Improvements triple aim framework. So just better patient experience, better outcomes at a lower cost to society. I, I fundamentally believe that healthcare disparities is one of those places where you can really demonstrate the value of those objectives. Um, we know the experience has not been ideal for communities of color as it relates to their experience with the healthcare system. Uh, there's ample room and a lot of a lot of room to improve their outcomes. I think you just outlined that. And in so doing, you know, we know that healthcare disparities drive cost to the system, drive cost to society. If we can tackle this at scale and we have a lot of commitment and focus to to do that, we can start to lower costs to the overall system of care. And so I think that's a powerful 
um, opportunity that we have in front of us. And clinical research is, is kind of one of those dimensions where they, we know that there's a disparity within the care continuum. Um, if we can drive some progress there and drive it in other areas across the continuum of care, I think we would be adding a lot of value to the healthcare system in this spectrum of uh, within this, this domain. Well, I have one last question for you. And I, once again, I just wanna thank you for joining us. I'm not sure if you saw the 60 Minutes interview recently with Professor David Williams, where he talked about the impact of race on healthcare. Um, and he estimated that a jumbo jet of African-American lives are lost every day due to racism in healthcare, over 200 lives per day. Hmm. Do you think diversifying our clinical trials can shrink that number in and of itself? Hmm. I think it's part of the solution. I, I really do think it's part of the solution. And here's why. There is an incentive for large uh, biotechnology manufacturers, drug development companies to, uh, to, to in, in our efforts to bring more medicines to the market. We have to invest in research in order to do that. We have to tee up a scientific question. We have to answer it, collect the evidence, put that evidence in front of the regulatory community and, and see where the decisions land on that and then create new opportunity for more medicines to help patients. So within that incentive uh, to, to do that, it, it creates a mechanism for industry to invest in the healthcare system in very concrete ways uh, to ensure that we can optimize the efficiencies of clinical research, the environment, and you know, so that we can answer some of these questions and 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 support patients in the process. That incentive connects to some of the care delivery incentives of healthcare institutions and the physicians to provide great care to their patients. And so because this system creates this, this space for us to collaborate and work within and allows manufacturers to invest in better patient care. If we are doing this and, and also focusing it in on the area within this system where we know that there is a disparity, disparity in participation, to your point at the beginning of this call around engineering new promise and, and new, uh, new value, we can start to engineer things in a way that create new efficiencies to deliver care to more patients, more affordably, and ultimately improve patient outcomes. So I, I think that with a focus of industry figuring out how we diversify research, both at a patient level and then also the participants who are both shaping the research agenda and you know the physicians and the care teams that are operating within that system, we will start to uncover the ways to just optimize care delivery at large. Uh, and those learnings and that, that kind of innovation system will create new value for patients, new value for communities, and ultimately reduce the amount of loss that happens because our care is not as good as it could be or as good as we want it to be. And I think I, I would equate that loss to that jumbo jet and the passengers that would be on that type of jumbo jet. Um, if we can 
Yeah, reduce the number of passengers who get on those jets daily and are lost to just the inefficiencies of the system at large and the misaligned incentives within the system at large and the, just some of these kind of structural issues that have been born out of a variety of different underlying causes that, yes, we, we would reduce the amount of loss um, which have, you know, great impact on communities and on families and and on people. Um, and, and so I, I fundamentally think that that's part of what biotech's opportunity is in this moment. You know, you're hearing a lot of companies make equity pledges and, and make commitments and say they're bringing in new resources. We do have resources that scale solutions that reduce disparities and can help shape healthier communities. We have that at our disposal. Um, to the, I, I am here to witness it and see it and be a part of delivering it. Others are in these positions as well. Uh, now that we have this collective attention on this problem, I think it, it is our charge to ensure that we are now directing our resources into the system in a way that delivers more values, more value, reduces the inefficiency and the loss that comes alongside of it, and, and ultimately helps improve the health of the communities that we are investing in. So yes, yes, I think we can do more. And I think we, we can do it through this focus in research um, because it's it's so central and core to our, our business operation and our, our long-term sustainability as an industry. Jaren, that is a powerful place to stop. I cannot thank you enough joining us and sharing a little bit of Genentech's powerful commitment in this space and results that you guys are achieving. Thank you so much for sharing it. And I hope we get to have a conversation again soon. Well, Michelle, thank you for the, the conversation. Thank you for opening up the platform. And, and thank you for the inspiration that you are um, providing to, uh, to all of us in this industry. We're following your lead. I love the bioequality agenda. I think that's uh, you know a great place to to help catalyze a, a lot of ongoing investment in this space, and and we're certainly going to be watching you and and look forward to being a part of this change. Uh, we're excited about it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to I Am Bio. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite platform and give us a rating or review.